0: Ezekiel chapter 17, verses 1 through 24. The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, thus says the Lord God, a great eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants." Then he took of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him. And its roots remained where it stood, so it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage, and behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted, that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters, that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Thus says the Lord God, will it thrive? Will he not pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it from its roots. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it sprouted? Then the word of the Lord came to me, saying, "Out of the rebellious house, Do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, Behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt, that he might, they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his mighty army and great company will not help him in war. When mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives, He despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things, he shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there, for the treachery he has committed against me, and all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword." And the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord, I have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches, Birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree, and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. You see back at chapter beginning of chapter 17 that Ezekiel is told to tell the people of Israel, the captives there in Babylon, a riddle. But another word for this riddle. Riddle could be a parable. I can show it to you from Ezekiel. Go to chapter 20. Look at verses 45 through 49. Ezekiel chapter 20, verses 45 through 49. It says, "'The word of the Lord came to me, son of man, "'set your face toward the south land, "'preach against the south, "'and prophesy against the forest land in the Negev. "'Say to the forest of the Negev, uh, "'Hear the word of the Lord. "'Thus says the Lord God, "'Behold, I will kindle a fire in you, "'and it shall devour every green tree in you, "'and every dry tree.'" the blazing flame shall not be quenched and all the faces from the south to the north shall be scorched by it all flesh shall see that i the lord have kindled it it shall not be quenched then i said ah lord god they're saying of me is he not a maker of parables and so in chapter 17 we see that god tells ezekiel i want you to tell a riddle i want you to tell a parable to the people of israel And later on, we see that God has them do another one. And he says, God, all they're saying about me is is all he does is tell parables. So what I want to do tonight, before we get into breaking down this parable here in chapter 17 of Ezekiel, is I want to deal with this whole question. Why does God speak in parables? Now, there's a lot of answers to that question, but I'm going to bring out two answers for tonight. The first one is very easy and very clear. One of the reasons why God speaks in parables is because the scripture said he would. Go to Psalm chapter 78, and I'll show you what I mean. Then Psalm 78, verses 1 through 4. Psalm 78, verses 1 through 4, it says, Give, O ear, my people, to my teaching. Incline your ears to the words of my mouth. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings from of old, things that we have heard and known that our fathers have told us. We will not hide them from their children, but tell them to the coming generation the glorious deeds of the Lord and His might and the wonders that He has done. So here the Scripture says, God speaking. He says, I'm going to speak to the people in parables. Go to Matthew chapter 13. Jesus now is speaking here. In chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, it says... All these things, chapter 13 of of Matthew, verse 34, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. By the way, where, where were they quoting from here in Matthew 13? Psalm 78. Good for you. You were paying attention. That was just a little quiz to make sure you guys weren't sleeping on me here tonight. They quoted from where we just saw. But there's another reason. Second reason why God speaks in parables, excuse me, is to separate those who truly want to learn from God from those who only want to see things with their own eyes and their own understanding. I want to clarify this for you so you understand. I'm going to give you the brief explanation and then I'll show you from Scripture what I mean. The reason why God speaks in parables is He speaks in parables or riddles. Because they're not easily understood unless you say, I don't understand. Would you explain it to me? Do you see what I'm saying? But if you think you've already got it all figured out and you're not humble enough to want to be taught, you're not going to get it. And he's designed it so that the humble, those who are wanting help, those who are willing to say, Lord, please show me what you mean, will be given understanding but those who aren't willing to receive understanding won't understand. Let me show you what I mean. Go to chapter 13 and back up to verse 10. It says, Then the disciples came to Jesus and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? And he answered them, To you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been given. For to the one who has, more will be given, and he will have an abundance But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is why I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Indeed, in their case, the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled that says, You will indeed hear, but never understand. You will indeed see, but never perceive. For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and their eyes they have closed. Lest they should see with their eyes, and hear with their ears, and understand with their heart, and turn, and I would heal them. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For truly I say to you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see, and did not see it, and to hear what you hear, and did not hear it. Now for years, that section of Scripture has given me a little bit of a bellyache. Because if we're honest... Just in the cursory reading of it, it sounds like Jesus was saying, some of you are supposed to get it, and some of you aren't supposed to get it. And it's been given to you, it's not been given to them. And if they understood it, then I'd have to turn and heal them. And I don't want to do it. Doesn't it kind of read like that? If they understood it, then I'd have to turn and heal them. And so for years, that's bothered me. But as I started to really dig into this to get ready for tonight's study... God opened my eyes to something in verse 15 that I had never seen before. Look again at verse 15. For this people's heart has grown dull. Did you catch that? Did it start dull? No, it became dull. And with their ears, they can barely hear. And their eyes, who closed their eyes? They have closed. In other words, he says, I've been preaching to them. I've been sharing truth. But there came a point where they decided they didn't want to hear it. So from now on, I'm going to only speak in riddles. I'm only going to speak in parables to the people of Israel. They've shut their eyes. It's been given to you. It's not been given to them. Why it had been given to his disciples? Because they were humble enough to say, Lord, explain it to me. I can prove it to you. Chapter 13, look at uh, verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him, saying, "Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field." Do you see it? Did I say that Ma- did I didn't say Matthew? Okay, Matthew. I said if I said Mark, I'm sorry. Matthew, right here, chapter 13, verse 36. He had already explained the parable of the weeds, starting in verse 24. Later on, they come to him and they humbly say, "Lord, we didn't understand." So if you think that when the passage is saying it's given to you, I understand, so that the first time he tells the parable, they go, I get it. And the other people go, I don't get it. That doesn't make any sense. Oh, well, it's been given to you. It hasn't been no, that's not what it's saying. What it's saying is for those who are willing to say, I don't understand, but Lord, please help me see it. Give me the eyes to see, give me the ears to hear. The Bible says that the God has designed all of the world so that the world would not only know He exists, but that they would come to know Him and then depend on Him for everything. Let me just remind you some basic scriptures that you already know. Romans chapter 1, verses 18 and following talks about how God has revealed Himself to the whole world through creation. All men are without excuse. His divine qualities, his invisible nature have been clearly seen through what has been made so that everybody's been without excuse. He's already revealed who he is to the whole world through creation. In Acts chapter 17, verse 24, Paul's speaking to the Areopagus on Mars Mars Hill. And he says to those guys there, he says, look, you get all these altars to all these different gods. And you've even got one to an unknown god. Let me explain to you who it is. And starting in verse 24, he says, The God who made the heavens and the earth doesn't live in temples made by human hands, nor is he served by human hands as if he needed anything, for he himself gives life and breath and everything else to all mankind. And he determined the times set for them and the exact places that they would live. In other words, he says, God not only reveals himself through creation, he also determined when in history everybody would be born and live, and exactly where they'd be born and live, so that they would reach out for him and perhaps find him, because he's right near all of us. Do you realize he orchestrated even my flight that I told you about before we started the recording, so that I'd run into that pastor and his family? He controls everything so that we would depend on him. And in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, the scripture says, without faith it's impossible to please God, for we must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who, what? Diligently seek him. All of life has been designed by God so that the world would know he exists, he controlled when and where we'd be born so that we would come to know him, and he wants us to depend on him at all times. And so, Do you want to have eyes to see and ears to hear? You have to just keep a humble spirit, humble attitude that says, Lord, you'll show me. Don't we see that in John in the book of Revelation when he's asked this question and he doesn't know the answer to the question? But what did he say? Sir, you know. In other words, I don't know, but you do. Please tell me. Help me to see. But see, the Jews that hadn't understood what he was talking about had already closed their own eyes. Their ears had become dull because in their mind, they had already considered or come up with their own answer for how life should be and how their righteousness would be. And they, even though God kept trying to show them, they wouldn't listen. And their eyes and their ears had become dull because they had shut them. And he said, I'm going to speak to them in parables. But for those who are willing to listen you'll be given insight. Doesn't the book of James say that in James chapter 1, verse 5 and following? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him what? Ask God, who gives to all generously, liberally, without finding fault. And when you ask, don't doubt. Believe that he will. And so the parables are just simply one of the ways that God uses to separate those who want to learn and those who don't. All right? Now, as you're about to see, when he speaks in parables... It's not for us to try to figure out and guess what everything means. I actually, as you've heard me say again and again and again, and I'll repeat it to you over and over, the Bible does use symbolic language. Here we see eagles and cedar trees and vines and branches and twigs. Oh, but guess what? Every time the Bible uses symbolic language, it then tells you what it symbolizes. And so let's start to break down chapter 17. Look at verses 1 through 4. Says the word of the Lord came to me, Son of man, propound a riddle and speak a parable to the house of Israel. Say, Thus says the Lord God an eagle with great wings and long pinions, rich in plumage of many colors, came to Lebanon and took the top of the cedar. He broke off the topmost of its young twigs and carried it to a land of trade and set it in a city of merchants. The first eagle that came and plucked off the top of the branches of the cedar is the king Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. I'm going to explain to you where I get all this in just a second. But the first eagle in this story is the the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And he takes the top of the cedar and plucks off his branches and carries it off to Babylon. The cedar is Judah, the nation of Judah, southern kingdom. He came and took the king of Judah, Jehoiachin, and some of the leading men off to captivity in Babylon, which, by the way, is also described as a land of merchants. If you were to go back to chapter 16 and things around verse 26 through 29, you'll see that the Babylon is described as a place of merchant, merchants, sellers, and trade. All right. So we don't get to fill in what the eagle or the branches mean. Scripture tells us. Go down to verses 11 and 12 here of chapter 17. Then the word of the Lord came to me, say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold, the king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to Babylon." You see how it explains the parable? Pretty clear, isn't it? Just like we saw with Jesus in Matthew 13. told the parable of the wheat and the tares, or the wheat and the weeds. And they came later and said, could you explain it to us? And then he does. Same thing when he told the parable of the soils. Later on, he came and explained it to them. So. Go to 2 Kings chapter 24. Look at verses 8 through 17 there. In 2 Kings 24 verses 8 through 17, this is the topmost part of the cedar that was plucked off. Jehoiachin was 18 years old when he became king and he reigned three months in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Nehushta, the daughter of Elnathan of Jerusalem. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord according to all that his father had done. "'At that time the servants of Nebuchadnezzar, "'the king of Babylon, came up to Jerusalem, "'and the city was besieged. "'And Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, "'came to the city while his servants were besieging it. "'And Jehoiachin, the king of Judah, "'gave himself up to the king of Babylon, "'himself and his mother, and his servants, "'and his officials, and his palace officials. "'The king of Babylon took him prisoner "'in the eighth year of his reign, "'and carried off all the treasures of the house of the Lord, "'and the treasures of the king's house. "'And he cut in pieces all the vessels of gold "'in the temple of the Lord, "'which Solomon, the king of Israel, had made.' as the Lord had foretold. He carried away all Jerusalem and all the officials and all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives and all the craftsmen and the smiths. None remained except the poorest people of the land." "'And he carried away, to Jehoi- carried away Jehoiachin to Babylon, "'the king's mother, the king's wives, his officials, "'the chief men, and the land. They took into captivity from Jerusalem to Babylon. "'And the king of Babylon brought captive to Babylon "'all the men of valor, 7,000, "'and the craftsmen and metal workers, "'1,000 of them strong and fit for war. "'And the king of Babylon made Mataniah, Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. So here we see in 2 Kings 24 that the king of Babylon comes, takes the king, the top of the cedar, and some of the top branches, carries them off to Babylon. That's He's the eagle that comes and takes the top of the cedar, carries them off to Babylon. But does he take everybody out of Jerusalem? No, he left some people. The poorest people of the land were all left there, and he took Jehoiachin's Uncle Madaniah changed his name to Zedekiah and he made him king over Babylon. I'm sorry, over Jerusalem in that area there. That's very important for us to see because if you remember, go back to chapter 17 of Ezekiel, we see in verses 5 and 6 that the eagle took this of the seed of the land and planted it in fertile soil. He placed it beside abundant waters. He set it like a willow twig, and it sprouted and became a low spreading vine, and its branches turned toward him, and its roots remained where it stood. So it became a vine and produced branches and put out boughs. So here we see in this parable that the eagle took the top of the, the tree off the Babylon, but there, what was left, the seed of the tree was left. He planted it there, put it by abundant waters, f- took care of it, and it was to turn to Who? No. According to the parable, who was it to turn to? To Nebuchadnezzar. And actually, our first thought is, that's not good. Actually, you're going to see from Scripture, it was what God wanted happen. Go down later in chapter 17, look at verse uh, 13. It says, and he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him. This is Zedekiah, putting him under oath. We'll get to that later tonight. The chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. Actually, it was God's design that Nebuchadnezzar leave people in Judah, but he placed Zedekiah as king, but they were to be subservient to Nebuchadnezzar as a vassal state. And if they submitted to Nebuchadnezzar, they would survive. The people left in Jerusalem were to turn to Nebuchadnezzar and seek their provision from Nebuchadnezzar. Again, at first glance we want to see this as a bad thing, but it's exactly what God wanted them to do. I want to remind you why. God was disciplining them for turning to the gods of the other nations. And in essence he was saying he was letting them live under the power of those nations if that's what they wanted. In other words, he kept saying, don't worship the gods of the other nations. Don't worship the gods of the other nations around you. But they kept doing it, didn't they? So he pretty much said, "Hey, do you want to live like them? Do you really want to live like them? I'm going to let you live like them. I'm going to let them be in control over you. You can be under some of them. He took into captivity, and they had to live in Babylon. Others he left in Jerusalem, but they were under the control of the Babylonian king. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 16. Actually, we're going to skip past that. Go to Second uh, um, Kings 24. Second Kings 24." Look at verses 17 through 20. Again, it says that King Babylon made Mattaniah Jehoiachin's uncle, king in his place, and he changed his name to Zedekiah. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he became king, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hamatal, the daughter of Jeremiah of Libna. And he did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to all that Jehoiakim had done. For because of the anger of the Lord, it came to the point in Jerusalem and Judah that he cast them out from his presence And Zedekiah rebelled against the king of Babylon. Even though he was told that he wasn't to, but he was to submit. And you say, well, when was he told that he was to submit? I'll show you what the Bible shows you that. Go to Jeremiah 38. Remember, while Ezekiel is prophesying in Babylon, Jeremiah is still prophesying in Israel, in in Jerusalem. Jeremiah started his prophecy before Ezekiel did. But when Ezekiel was taken captive along with Jehoiachin and all those folks, and he started prophesying to the people in in Babylon, Jeremiah kept prophesying to the people left in Jerusalem. When He was one of those poorest people in the land that were left. In Jeremiah 38, look at verses 14 through 18. King Zedekiah sent for Jeremiah the prophet and received him at the third entrance of the temple of the Lord. The king said to Jeremiah, I will ask you a question, Hide nothing from me. Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, If I tell you, will you not surely put me to death? And if I give you counsel, you won't listen to me. Then King Zedekiah swore secretly to Jeremiah, As the Lord lives who made our souls, I will not put you to death or deliver you into the hand of these men who seek your life. Then Jeremiah said to Zedekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of hosts, the God of Israel, If you will surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then your life shall be spared, and this city shall not be burned with fire, and you and your house shall live. But if you do not surrender to the officials of the king of Babylon, then this city shall be given into the hands of the Chaldeans, and they shall burn it with fire, and you shall not escape from their hand. So the word of the Lord through Jeremiah to Zedekiah was what? Submit to Nebuchadnezzar. Again, God was disciplining them. Now, let me just take a quick second here to talk to you. Sometimes God, for his purposes of shaping and molding and teaching, puts us in situations that we don't like and we're uncomfortable with and we want out. God is not mad because we're his children and he loves us and everything he does for us is best. But if you look through the scriptures, there are periods of everyone's life, sometimes more than once, depending on how hard-headed they are, where God puts you in a time of testing and a time of struggle so that you will submit to him and submit yourself to whatever it is he's doing in your life to shape and to mold and to teach you i tell people this many for many years as a pastor i've told people this this way when god puts you on the operating table to accomplish a work don't get off the operating table until he's done the procedure How silly would it be for us in the midst of the procedure to get up and say, I'm good. No, let the surgeon finish his work. Joseph, God had mighty plans for Joseph, did he not? Your family's all going to bow down to you. He became second most powerful in Egypt. But between the promise and the fulfillment, Joseph had to be shaped and molded. Slavery, dungeon. And he had to let God's discipline accomplish it's purpose. I could go on through all the people in the Bible. They all go through it. Didn't Paul himself have a thorn in his flesh that he begged three times that God would take away? And what is God's answer? My grace is sufficient. I'm going to leave it there because it's doing a purpose. It's going to keep you from becoming conceited. And that's how he started it? In chapter 12, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he says, to keep me from becoming conceited because of these surpassing revelations that I've been given... He gave me a thorn in my flesh. And I asked him to take it away. I, I asked if I could get off the operating table. <clears throat> and he said, no. I want you to submit to what I'm doing. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have a purpose for this. And I'm actually going to show my power through you as you humble yourself and, and receive it. God loved Israel. Still does. Still did. But as a part of his shaping, he was going to let them live under the authority of the people whose gods they wanted to be like. You ever heard the stories of parents who find their kids smoking a cigarette or a cigar, and they say, you really want to do this? you got to finish the pack in the next hour, or put them in a closet with a whole bunch of cigars. You've heard the stories, haven't you? Well, what was the reason the parents did it? You really want to go there? I'm going to let you get the full experience. And then you realize you really don't want this. And that's what God was doing with the nation of Israel. And so in this story, the vine that had been left in Jerusalem was to turn toward the king of Babylon. Let's go back to our story. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 17. As we've just seen a taste of in one of the passages we read there in 2 Kings 24, instead of submitting to God's discipline under King Nebuchadnezzar, Zedekiah rebelled against Babylon, and he turned to the Egyptians for help by having them come against Babylon. In chapter 17, look at verses 7 and 8. Chapter 17 of Ezekiel, verse 7 says, And there was another great eagle with great wings and much plumage. And behold, this vine bent its roots toward him and shot forth its branches toward him from the bed where it was planted that he might water it. It had been planted on good soil by abundant waters that it might produce branches and bear fruit and become a noble vine. Jump down to verse 15. But he, Zedekiah, rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt that they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? Go over to Jeremiah 37. In Jeremiah 37, look at verses 1 through 10. It says, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Cuniah. That's a nickname for Jehoiachin, the son of Jehoiakim. But neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. King Zedekiah sent Jehuchel, the son of Shelemiah and Zephaniah the priest and the son of, of Messiah to Jeremiah the prophet saying, Please pray for us to the Lord our God. Now Jeremiah was still going in and out among the people for he had not yet been put in prison. The army of Pharaoh had come out of Egypt and when the Chaldeans who were besieging Jerusalem, that's the Babylonians, who were besieging Jerusalem heard news about them, they withdrew from Jerusalem. Then the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah the prophet, Thus says the Lord the God of Israel, Thus shall you say to the king of Judah who sent you to me and to inquire of me, "'Behold, Pharaoh's army that came to help you "'is about to return to Egypt, to its own land. "'And the Chaldeans shall come back "'and fight against this city. "'They shall capture it and burn it with fire. "'Thus says the Lord, "'Do not deceive yourselves, "'saying the Chaldeans will surely go away from us, "'for they will not go away. "'For even if you should defeat the whole army "'of the Babylonians, or the Chaldeans, "'who were fighting against you, "'and there remained only of them wounded men, "'and every man in his tent,' They would rise up and burn this city with fire. So what's happened is, as we already saw, Zedekiah, who had been left there to be under Nebuchadnezzar, and God said, submit yourself to Nebuchadnezzar and you'll stay in the land and you'll be okay. But he didn't. He didn't listen to the Lord. He didn't stay on the operating table. He wanted to get off. He thought he was good enough. He didn't need any more surgery. He's fine. He then contacted king of Egypt, Pharaoh, and said, come help me. Pharaoh sends an army, and when the army starts to come, the Babylonians see him, and they leave. And Jeremiah the prophet comes and says, let me tell you something that God wants you to know. The Egyptians are going to go back. When the Egyptians go back, the Babylonians are going to come back, and now they're going to destroy and burn the whole city because of what you've done. Oh, and don't think for a second that this ain't going to happen. Because even if you are able to defeat the Babylonians and they're only left of their army, the wounded men and the ones that are in their tents, that might, that's the chickens. That's the guys that are still hiding in their tents. If those are the only ones that are left, they'll still burn this city with fire. You had a question? Yeah. When God is telling them to turn, turn to Nebuchadnezzar and mm-hmm. you know, like that, he's not talking about worshiping their gods and everything like no. that. No. So he's just it. simply saying... I've, whether you acknowledge it or not, I've been the one providing for you. Now your provision's all going to come from them. You're going to be under them. Of course, he doesn't want them to turn to their gods because, you know, as you know, Daniel was taken into captivity, but he wasn't to worship their gods. Ezekiel, of course, and wasn't. He wasn't telling them to worship their gods. But what he was saying was, you're going to do it anyway. You're already doing it. Get the full taste, get the full experience. You're no longer going to be worshiping their gods, acting like them, acting like I'm not here, and have my blessings. My blessings are gone. Go get the full experience. You're now Babylonians. You're under their authority. All right? Now, in Jeremiah 37, 1 through 10, we just saw what Jeremiah had promised. I want to remind you, this is happening in Judah All this whole time that Ezekiel's telling the parable. Remember? This is around 588 BC that this is being told, the parable is being told. 597 is when he had been, Ezekiel and all those people in Jehoiachin had been taken captive into Babylon. Zedekiah had been left in place. But remember, Zedekiah was king for how long? 11 years. This is during that time that Zedekiah is rebelling right now. He's called Egypt and all this stuff. So the people in Babylon know what's going on. I'm sure word's passing back and forth. This is all happening at the same time. And God tells Ezekiel, I want you to tell him a riddle. Tell him a parable. There was this uh, great eagle. And it came and it took the top of the cedar, carried it off. And it left some of the seeds there and put it by abundant waters. And it was going to flourish. And it was to turn to the eagle for its provision. But then another eagle showed up. And they turn to him instead. And then God asks a question. Go back to Ezekiel chapter 17. Look at verses 9 and 10. God asks a question. Ezekiel 17 verses 9 and 10. Say, thus says the Lord, after all this has just happened, will it, the vine or the seeds that are left in the land, will it thrive? Will he not, this is the first eagle now, pull up its roots and cut off its fruit so that it withers, so that all its fresh sprouting leaves wither? It will not take a strong arm or many people to pull it up from its roots. Any idea why it won't be hard to pull it up from its roots? Exactly. Who's left in there? Only the poorest of the land. All the mighty men of valor. We've already seen it. We've already read it. The men of valor have all been taken away. It's just the poorest of the land. And when Egypt goes away and says, we ain't helping you. They're left just the poorest in the land who aren't really ready to fight. That's why he said, don't think even if you win... The wounded and the people hiding in their tents are still going to burn it with fire. It won't take much to defeat you. Behold, it is planted. Will it thrive? Will it not utterly wither when the east wind strikes it, wither away on the bed where it was sprouted? Go to chapter 17, look at verses 15 through 21. But he, Zedekiah, rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt. that They might give him horses and a large army. Here's the question again. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord God, surely in the place where the king dwells, who made him king, whose oath he despised, and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh, with his mighty army and his great company, will not help him in war when the mounds are cast up and siege walls are built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him and he shall be taken in my snare. And I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troops shall fall by the sword and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. Now, real quick question here. He talks about this covenant that he broke. I want to I take some time to break that down. By the way, if you want a specific detail of the destruction of Jerusalem and all that, we've touched on it a bunch already in previous parts of our study. But I'm going to give you three passages of Scripture you can go read on your own. The first one is 2 Kings 25 verses 1 through 7. 2 Kings 25 verses 1 through 7 talk about when Nebuchadnezzar finally comes and destroys them. 2 Chronicles 36... 11 through 21, 2 Chronicles 36, verses 11 through 21, and Jeremiah 52, 1 through 11 is another place where it's all counted. Jeremiah 52, verses 1 through 11. We won't take the time to read those, but that's the the account of Nebuchadnezzar coming back and destroying them. And by the way, do you remember? Uh, We've already read this in our study. Does Zedekiah go to Babylon? Yes, he's taken to Babylon. He dies in Babylon. Does he see Babylon? Exactly, you remember, you've been paying attention. Remember, he kills his sons right in front of him, and then he pokes his eyes out, so that's the last thing he ever remembers seeing. And he's taken to Babylon, and he ends his days in Babylon, but he never ever sees Babylon. Now, I don't want you to miss, though, what God says about Zedekiah in chapter 17, verses 18 and 19. And I just want to tell you right now, get ready, God wants to talk to us right now. God wants to talk to all of us right now with what he says here. In Ezekiel 17, verses 18 and 19, God says about Zedekiah, He despised the oath in breaking the covenant. And behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I'll return it upon his head. Here's my question. What is the oath that Zedekiah broke? You were on Tuesday night. You have to wait. Jeremy cheats. He comes on Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights. Hang on, Jeremy. What is the oath? What is the covenant that he broke? Go ahead, John. Yeah, he made the covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. Very good. You're dead on it. We're going to add one more thing to it. We'll go back. Go to 2 Chronicles 36. You're going to see he not only broke what God told him to do, he was told by Nebuchadnezzar to swear by his God. Go to uh, 2 Chronicles 36. Folks, the more we just take the time to break the Scriptures down and to study them, the more you come to realize whenever you run into questions in the Scriptures, the Bible will answer them. You just have to study It's for those who have eyes to see and ears to hear. And by the way, how do you get eyes to see and ears to hear? Ask. Ask. It will be given. Seek, you will find. Knock, the door will be open. God has designed it so that we would learn, but he's designed it so that we would humble ourselves. And Lord, teach me, show me. Oh, by the way, what if you ask him to give you wisdom and he doesn't tell you? What do you do? Wait. Wait. You know why? Because the Bible says to ask. God will give generously to all without finding fault. Oh, but ask and don't doubt. I've told this story before, but I'll remind you. I was speaking at a men's conference. I was talking on this subject about the fact that God will give answers and wisdom if we'll seek him. He came to me after. This man came to me and he said, Jim, I did what you asked. I tried it. It didn't work. He said, I asked God for wisdom, I waited, God didn't give me any wisdom, it didn't work. I said, that's because you didn't believe that God would do it. He said, no, 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 I did believe. I believed with everything in me. I asked God for wisdom, I believed, and he didn't do it. I said, that's because you didn't believe that he would. He said, you don't know my heart. How can you make that judgment if you don't know what was in my heart? I know what was in my heart. I really believed God was going to tell me, but he didn't. I said, that's because... You didn't believe that he would. He said, I'm about to punch you in your face. (laughs) Why do you keep saying that? I said, here's why. Because the Bible says that if we believe, and don't doubt, God will speak, if you really believe that he would tell you, even if he didn't tell you for a year, you would still believe that he would speak because he said he would. What happened to you was you believed that he would answer within a certain time period, and when God didn't respond in that time period you had given him, you didn't believe that he answered. He says he will give wisdom, he will give direction, but he gets to choose when. And you can't say, God, you got till Thursday. That's not faith, believing that he'll speak. If I believe that he'll speak, even if he said nothing, that means I wait because he said he would speak. He said he would speak. Well, he hadn't done anything yet, Jim, and we wait because he said he would speak. In 2 Chronicles 36, if we would do the study, like I said, you'll see all these answers to our questions are in the Bible. 2 Chronicles 36, look at verse 13. Well, we'll start in verse 11 so you can see the whole context. Zedekiah was 21 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 11 years in Jerusalem. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord his God. He did not humble himself before Jeremiah the prophet, who spoke from the mouth of the Lord. He also rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar, who had made him swear by who? By God. He stiffened his neck and hardened his heart against turning to the Lord the God of Israel. And then it goes on and le- look closely what it says again. He rebelled against King Nebuchadnezzar who had made him swear by God. Nebuchadnezzar said to him when he put him under his authority and put him as king over what was left in Jerusalem, he said, "Swear to me by your God that you will submit yourself to me." And he gave him his hand, he gave him his oath. And he swore by his God, the God of Israel, that he would do it. And he didn't. We got we to stop for a second and let the Spirit of God speak to us. We always hear people talk about using the name of the Lord in vain or God's name in vain. And we think that that's cussing and swearing and saying Jesus Christ is a swear word or GD or whatever. You know what? It's not great that people use God's name as a swear, but that's not using God's name in vain according to the Scriptures. I want you to see what the Scripture says using God's name in vain actually is. Let's go all the way back to Exodus chapter 20 and look at verse 7. This is one of the Ten Commandments. Exodus chapter 20. Look at verse 7. It says, You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Now again, we don't know what that means yet. It's okay, the scripture will show. Let's go to Leviticus chapter 19. One more book to the right. Leviticus chapter 19, look at verses 11 and 12. <clears throat> And when God's given them laws, he said, you shall not steal, shall not deal falsely, you shall not lie to one another, you shall shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. In other words, when we say, by God, I'll do it, and we don't do it, we're taking his name in vain. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. When my kids were born... What name did they get? They got my name. Nicole, Lee, and A.J., their last name is Johnson. And wherever they go, they represent Johnson, just like I represent my father. Oh, by the way, that's why Jesus comes on the scene talking to the Jews and says, Don't swear by the temple. Don't swear by the gold on the temple. You have no control over that kind of stuff. Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. James chapter 5 verse 12 says the same thing. Just be known as a person that does what they say. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. But I want to take it a step deeper. How many of you show hands hands been born again into the family of God through Jesus Christ? Guess whose name you are already taken. And now when you as a child of God with his name don't do what you say, you've broken the oath. You've broken the covenant that you've made. That's why God takes marriage so serious. That's why we are to be people who just, you know what? Don't be going and say, I swear. Out, Just let your yes be yes and your no be no. Anything else comes from the enemy, Jesus said. So I just want to challenge you. Be someone who does what they say they'll do. Because the Lord takes it pretty serious. He said he didn't keep the covenant that he made when he gave his hand. And not only did he break the covenant, he broke my covenant because he brought me into it. And he made me look bad. The cool part of this passage in Ezekiel 17, though, I love how all the way through God's judgments and his warnings, there's always that glimmer of hope. Look at verses 22 through the end of the chapter. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar, and I will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird. In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest, and all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make the high tree high, low, high. the low tree, and I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. And I am the Lord, I have spoken, I will do it. Here at the end, God then says, oh, by the way, I'm also going to take one of these branches from Judah. And I'm going to set it apart. And then at a certain time, I'm going to take that branch that I have taken from this tree. And I'm going to plant it myself on a lofty mountain in Israel. And everyone will be under that leader. And all the world will know that I'm the Lord. Who's he talking about? The Messiah, it's Jesus. It's Jesus. But just in case you weren't sure, we don't get to put who we think in the parable is what? That's, remember, if they use a symbolic language, and I'm gonna take a twig, and I'm gonna put it on the lofty mountains of Israel, we better get our answer from the scripture, not because preacher Jim said it was Jesus. There's lots of people tell you it's all sorts of stuff. No, let's let the Scripture speak, and we'll close with that tonight in the time we have left. Go to Isaiah chapter 4. By the way, when Jesus makes his prophecy through Ezekiel here, Isaiah has already spoken. God has already spoken through Isaiah what we're about to read in chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. <clears throat> Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, In that day, those, are those wonderful words about the end days. In that day, the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful. The what of the Lord? Isn't that interesting that he uses that term? The branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be the pride and the honor of the survivors of Israel. And he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem. When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and cleansed the blood stains of Jerusalem from its midst by a spirit of judgment and by a, burn, a spirit of burning, then the Lord will create over the whole site of Mount Zion and over her assemblies a cloud by day and smoke and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For over all the glory there will be a canopy. There will be a booth for shade by day from the heat and for refuge and a shelter from the storm and the rain. He's going to take a branch and he's going to set it in Jerusalem. Now if you remember from our study of Revelation, what happens at the very end of the tribulation with that huge earthquake that affects the whole earth? Every city is destroyed, remember, on the whole globe. And Jerusalem is split into three parts at that time. The middle part raises up. And the other northern-south parts become flat. And the area of the temple and all that's going to be raised up. And that's where Jesus is going to be put. And he's going to reign. But don't take my word for it. Go to Isaiah chapter 11. Look at verses 1 through 13. (coughs) There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And uh, there's that word again. A branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. By the way, those are the seven spirits of God that we see in Revelation. And his delight, this branch, his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord, and he shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Go Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 8. Again, prophecy of Jeremiah before Ezekiel even prophesied what we just read in chapter 17. Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 8. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord the God of Israel concerning the shepherds. Who care for my people? You have scattered my flock and have driven them away and have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous Branch. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and it shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. "'In his days Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. "'And this is the name by which he will be called, "'The Lord is our righteousness. "'Therefore, behold, the days are coming,' declares the Lord, "'when they shall no longer say, "'As the Lord who who brought us up, the people of Israel, "'out of the land of Egypt, but as the Lord lives, "'who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel "'out of the north country, and out of all the countries "'where he had driven them, then they shall dwell "'in their own land.'" One more passage, Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. Jeremiah 33, verses 14 through 16. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. Sorry, let me jump down to verse 14. I started reading verse 1. Chapter, 4, chapter 33, verse 14. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the promise I made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause, what? A righteous branch to spring up for David And he shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will dwell securely. And this is the name by which it will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. There you go. So when Ezekiel is speaking, thus says the Lord, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and set it out. I'll set it apart. And I'll break off from the topmost of its young twigs a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high lofty mountain. On the mountain of height of Israel will I plant it that he or it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar, and under it will dwell every kind of bird and goes on, and all the trees of the field will be in its shade. When God says that through Ezekiel, is this the first time we've heard it? Not at all. We've already seen it twice in Isaiah and twice in Jeremiah. Ezekiel was just prophesying the same stuff that God had been saying through Isaiah and through Jeremiah. Folks, it's there. It's been there. One day, the only way that this world will be righteous, the only way that this world will follow under God's plan is when Jesus himself comes back. So, here's my question for you as we close tonight. If one day he will be acknowledged by everyone as Lord... What's keeping us who know him already from submitting to his lordship today? I had a wonderful conversation with that pastor I was telling you about. It lasted the whole plane flight. The fun part of the conversation was, have you ever been on an airplane, and this was a bumpy flight, have you ever been on an airplane when things start getting a little bumpy, your ears start to get clogged, and the only way you can hear yourself or hear anybody else is if you talk loud? Well, this was happening, and by the time the flight was over, he and I weren't just preaching to each other. We were preaching to the whole plane because we didn't realize how loud we had gotten because our ears had gotten clogged until we could see the reactions of the people around. The neat thing was, they all just sat and listened. But as we were sharing with each other and encouraging each other, everything just kept coming back to walk with him today. He and I shared how years ago when we first started preaching, we used to challenge people to make a vow. From this day forward, I'm going to live for the Lord. We used to all get up and sing the song together, I Surrender All. Remember singing that one? I surrender all, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior. Remember that one? And we meant it. But God doesn't ask us to do that. You remember the Bible says that we have to be willing to take up our cross daily. Walking with Jesus does not happen when you make a promise that you're going to keep for the rest of your life. How how does he feel about making promises we don't keep? So I want to challenge you. As I ask you to submit yourself to the one who one day everybody's going to acknowledge his lordship, if he's now living inside of you and he wants to be lord of your life, what's he talking to you about now that he wants you to submit to And just surrender to what he's doing. Stop fighting it. As he told Paul, it's kind of hard to kick against the pricks. It's kind of hard to fight against when when God's wanting to get something done. It's God's way of saying, I'm going to win. You either submit and we can get moving. Or you can fight against me a little bit longer and become really miserable. He says in Psalms, he says, don't make me put a bit in your mouth. That's the only way you can get a horse or a mule sometimes to turn around is you got to put a bit in his mouth. Don't make me put a bit in your mouth. But I don't want you today say, all right, Lord, I submit to your authority. No, he says, look, you can not even handle if I gave you everything I wanted you to do in the years to come or days, however long we have. But there's something he's talking to each of us about. Some of us, he's asking us to take a step of obedience and faith that scares us and we're afraid to. Submit to his lordship. He knows what's best. Trust him. Some of you, he's asking you to stop doing something that he doesn't want you to be doing, and maybe stop and then take a step of obedience that you need to trust him on how he's going to provide. Whatever it is that he's talking to you about, do what he says, because that's what it means to say Jesus is Lord. Did you hear me? If Jesus is Lord, he gets to call shots. We'll see you in two weeks. Thanks for coming.